0: And welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a an especially fun candidate for that category, Movies That Deserve More Love, because it is one that I have had a great fondness for for many, many years, and I have not met too many other people that love this movie as much as I do. And our movie is the 1992 Nicolas Cage vehicle, Honeymoon in Vegas, uh, which I will make the argument is maybe the most, the, the Nick Cagiest movie of them all. And I've loved it for years and I always love Nick Cage. But I know there's a huge pushback against him, a lot of people that just cannot stand him. And so this is a, uh, I kind of feel very strongly about this episode that this is a movie that really needs some cheerleaders. And I'm very excited because I have a co host who not only does podcasts and has done movie podcasts in the past, but loves this movie as much as I do. So this is kind of like the keymaster meeting the gatekeeper here. You're going to throw two very passionate Honeymoon in Vegas fans onto a podcast and just let them riff. And I will say, let's see, he is a, uh, a writer and actor from uh, New York, and he writes about movies a lot. And again, we just stumbled onto each other on Twitter. I'll tell that story in a minute, how we ran into each other. But please welcome to the show Johnny Pomato. Oh, thank you for having me, Mario. So, Johnny, tell us who you are, because I, I am meeting you for the first time. We only know each other through Twitter. Sell yourself to my audience. Who are you? Uh, Yeah, I'm a,
1: uh, a sometimes actor, sometimes writer, and just general film enthusiast. Uh, I, I'm not, like, currently writing for anyone at the moment, but I do catalog every film that I see each year on Twitter, and I, I, I number them and everything, and I, I I do a little capsule review, Uh and you know, I, I usually get into the, you know, I, I don't know, I'm at like 5.50 now or something like that, but uh maybe a month ago, uh I forced my wife to sit down for what I thought was maybe her first viewing of Honeymoon in Vegas, and like the whole time she was saying, no, you've showed this to me before. <laughs> like, oh yeah, well, guess what? You're watching it again. And so we watched it, and then I, I did my typical thing. I went on Twitter, and it's like, oh, number... Four hundred and ninety seven. Honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, what a wonderful Nicolas Cage film. Does it get any better than this? Nicolas Cage won an Oscar for the wrong Vegas movie. Something like that. Whatever I said. And uh, yeah, you reached out to me saying, uh, oh, my gosh, I found another one. Someone who loves Honeymoon in Vegas as much as I do. And uh, would you like to talk about it with me uh, on the show? And it's like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, this movie needs all the press it can get. uh, What uh, these nearly 30 years later.
0: Yeah, this this is the equivalent of the Sesame Street people finding Mr. Snuffleupagus. <laughs> I could not believe. I had gone on Twitter and I posted, I'm like, I want to do a podcast on Honeymoon in Vegas because I love this movie and nobody does. And I posted my tweet and I did a search on Twitter for Honeymoon in Vegas. And Johnny had literally posted his review of how much he loved it, like 45 seconds right before I posted mine. And I'm like, this is fate. This is kismet. We are now going to meet and talk about this. It was just that simple. Yes. So I will I will welcome you to the show in the typical Hawaiian way. Kabluna.
1: (laughs) Kabluna to you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) So I made a statement there at the start. Well, first, I said, I love Nicolas Cage movies, and most people do not. Would you agree with that? Is that your experience as well?
1: Uh, He definitely seems to be having issues these days in terms of uh, fan awareness or audience awareness. Uh, y- You know, it was not that long ago that Nicolas Cage was still an A-lister actor who could open a movie, you know, an Academy Award winner to, to boot. Uh, but yeah, it, it was less than 10 years ago he was making those National Treasure movies that I thought were kind of dumb fun, but, uh, or, or that, um, wasn't he the Sorcerer's Apprentice at one point? Something like that. I think that's what killed it, actually. That was maybe his last big studio movie, and uh, but that wasn't that long ago, and then all of a sudden, nothing. And, you know, I think that there were some uh, tax issues. Uh, I don't think he was a Madoff uh, victim, but something like that, and so he started just taking every little film he could get, which usually didn't open that wide, and so I think he's become something of a joke, and unjustly, I say.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, I don't really follow most of his career nowadays because he does more of the action stuff, like you said, the uh, National Treasure, which I don't really have much interest in those movies. But Yeah, same. Yeah, you go back at the start of his career when he was just doing comedies. And this is the thing I think people forget. All he did were comedies up until, I believe, The Rock. That was the first one that wasn't a straight-up comedy. And, like, Honeymoon in Vegas is, in my opinion, Nicolas Cage at his comedic best because this whole movie is just Nicolas Cage being crazy and screaming. Yeah, I, uh, I mean,
1: it's so hard to pick a favorite for me. I, I'm a big Raising Arizona fan and, uh, Peggy Sue got married. I think his performance in that is inspired. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, later on, stuff like adaptation, I think he's just incredible. Uh, but this is really just pure Cage. And, uh, he's almost even like, It's it's almost not his movie. I think he gets third billing below James Caan and Sarah Jessica Parker. Like he is – the yeah, it's sort of crazy. It's coming off of – I guess Moonstruck was maybe two years before this. I want to say this might have been the first time I saw a Nicholas – the first time I saw Nicolas Cage where I was aware of him. I had seen Moonstruck already. I don't know if I'd already seen Peggy Sue Got Married, but I'd seen him, but he hadn't made that much of an impression on me, or I didn't recognize him as, like, this guy, this entity that he is. But this certainly made it clear and uh, ingrained on me for quite some time. So you hadn't realized
0: that he's crazy yet?
1: I hadn't. Yeah, I well I hadn't seen uh Vampire's Kiss yet, you know, that that had uh, already come out, but you I discovered that later. It's like, oh, wow, this puts every, everything into perspective. Uh but yes, uh in this and and he's so lovable in this too. He's 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 deranged and crazy, but he's also your hero, which doesn't always line up. Uh the craziest Nicolas Cage performances are not always the ones where he is the protagonist. Uh but this
0: one he truly is. Huh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. But yeah, this movie in particular, Honeymoon in Vegas, like you said, he's... He's playing the everyman, which cracks me up. And he even says in the movie, I'm Jack Singer, I'm everyman. I'm like, really, Nicolas Cage? That's like, I think back to uh, the movie, you know the Dead Zone, the Stephen King movie, The Dead Zone? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, that he wrote that, and Stephen King's point in that movie was that it was about everyman. It could be any person in America that gets this gift. And he named his character John Smith to point out what an everyman he was. And then they go out and they get Christopher Walken to play everyman, which I've always loved. And that's the equivalent here. (laughs) We're going to have the everyman is just Nicolas Cage with his crazy bug eye. Screaming. Although, I was going to say one thing of that. It's really. I didn't realize that he was third build in this movie. I didn't realize he wasn't that big a deal because this is one of those rare movies that I cannot think of anybody else starring in it and it would be the same movie. Yeah, same. And I
1: also. When I, you know, rewatching this and doing some research, I was looking like, what was the alternate casting for this? Because, you know, Nicolas Cage, not yet huge. I, maybe he wasn't the first choice. I'm guessing like James Caan, uh, you know, maybe they were looking at like Al Pacino or someone also pretty big at the time for that. Not that I would ever uh, trade James Con for anyone in this movie, uh, but I couldn't find anything. And it's like, yeah, I... I always like to play that "what if" game, of like, oh, who could have been in this? But with this, I don't even want to think about it because everyone is so perfect. It's, uh, it, it is the peak of uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, as far as I'm concerned, and it's the sort of most lovable and friendly performance you ever got out of James Caan. And then, yeah, it's 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 the perfect balancing act for Nick Cage of that uh, manic craziness and also uh, the the sweet romantic lead.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, you bring up sweet and romantic. That brings up a point that this movie often gets called a romantic comedy. Although, like, if you were to take a rom-com from about 10 years later, what a rom-com looked like in the 2000s, it looks nothing like this movie.
1: I could not agree with you more. This is one of the reasons I love this movie, is that this is what romantic comedies used to look like. This is from an era when romantic comedies had an emphasis on the comedy. They were funny. I, I think we entered an era where romantic comedies looked like, uh, sorry, punching bag, but, uh, Catherine Heigl, 27 Dresses, that kind of thing, uh, how to lose a guy in 10 days, where they're not particularly funny, it just has to end with a rush to the airport or something like that, and this is just a pure comedy that is also very romantic, I, I could bring up other examples, You, you know, uh, one thing that people never consider is uh, Groundhog Day. That is a romantic comedy. No one thinks of it in those terms, like that genre, but it truly is. And I miss romantic comedies, like true ones. Some of my favorite films are these films of this genre, and you just don't get that kind of film made anymore.
0: Yeah, it's it's really hard to get a funny PG movie that's, like, everybody would enjoy. And it's funny you brought that up, like, the Katherine Heigl movies and the romantic comedies. Like, it seemed to me the romantic comedies very became very strictly marketed towards women, like, in the 2000s. And, like like, the implication being that a woman wouldn't like this movie. Although, I remember seeing this with my mom, and she thought this was hilarious. She loved this movie. And I've even heard other people say, oh, that's the movie where you know a guy bets his uh, girlfriend in a poker game. It's sexist. I don't want to watch that. I'm like, that's not entirely what the plot is, and I don't think it's a sexist movie at all. I think it's a very cute and charming movie. But I do agree with you that, yeah, movies really moved away from this at a certain point. There just is no equivalent to A Honeymoon in Vegas today where, again, a funny PG movie that both my mom and I would equally find funny and charming
1: absolutely this checks off so many boxes you have the like the romance angle you have the kind of crazy comedy and then you got James Conn in there for your dad you you know it's like a a family of six can sit down and everyone will find something to enjoy in this film
0: yeah and again it just goes back into my argument and I I don't know if I've ever said this on staff picks before that I think Nicolas Cage should just be in every movie just because he's such a wild card you never know what you're going to get out of him and we're going to go into this in a minute like why I love this movie because I will Flat-out admit, I didn't love this movie the first time I saw it. Like, when it first mm. came out, it was just one of many of these fairly cute, charming, funny comedies that came out in the mid-'90s. I'm thinking, like, Sister Act would have been an equivalent to this. Sure. And these were all pretty funny movies. But, like, over the years as I've watched this one over and over, and just how quotable it is, that's what kills me, is Nicolas Cage getting... I think that I believe the, the uh, scientific term would be progressively more perturbed about his situation uh-huh. and screaming. But just the quotes, there's like 10 quotes in this movie I use almost on a weekly basis. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, there's one in particular I say all the time, and we'll get there, I'm sure.
0: Oh, I'm dying to know which one it is. Now I'm trying to figure out which one got you because I, I rotate which one my favorite is here.
1: Yeah, it's something that I'll say if I'm uh, having a mild disagreement with the wife or something or, or if she points out something obvious to me, just to you know, <laughs> sprinkle in a clue.
0: Okay, good. I'm very excited about that. Okay, before we delve into the movie here, I just want to say again, um, this movie was a fairly big hit at the time, not a huge hit, and it's not one that I was instantly thought was a classic when I saw it. It just kind of grew on me over the years, and this may be a surprise to you because you live in New York, you're in you know, acting and writing and stuff, you know full well this became a Broadway play later,
1: right? I did, and I saw it. I was uh, going to talk to you about that uh, as we got further down the line, but yes. Uh, and and uh, not just that, but it was adapted and directed by Andrew Bergman as well. Like That is a rare little gem that you get to have, is that the actual person who made the film may- adapts his own work, which is uh, refreshing because uh, otherwise the uh, results aren't always so great. But I actually really enjoyed the uh, Honeymoon in Vegas musical. I thought it was quite charming, and I am not a big fan of the movie musical adaptations. I mean, you know, there's exceptions to the rule, but a lot of them are really bad. I saw one just this afternoon. That was dreadful. I almost <laughs> walked out. But uh, but I, I really thought that this was a sweet show that... Truly have the spirit of the film and uh, hey even Tony Danza made a pretty great Tommy the gambler
0: Okay, I, I was gonna ask I didn't know cuz I this is how much I know about Broadway Is that I was googling pictures of honeymoon in Vegas this afternoon to put on Twitter? And that's when I discovered this was also a Broadway play. So I had oh no, wow so, no, for, Okay, but my second question is I don't want to get too far into this How does someone other than Nicolas Cage play the lead in the story? How does that work? Is that is, is it even possible?
1: Uh, I will say, uh, as much as I did enjoy the uh, musical adaptation, uh, the guy who played him, I think his name was Rob McClure. Oh, no, that's wrong. He's, he's a Rob. There's a lot of Robs on Broadway. Uh, he's on Broadway right now in Beetlejuice. This is like his thing. And he's about to do the Mrs. Doubtfire musical. This guy exclusively does uh, uh, movie musical adaptations, apparently. Uh, he was very nice, he was good. Uh, he did not have the sort of manic side that Nicolas Cage has. He, he played him a little sweeter, a little gentler, uh, like, like, you know, Betsy was, was almost the dominant force in the relationship. And he was the, the meat guy, you know, kind of, oh, I'm, I'm too nervous to get married. Oh, what will my mother, the ghost of my mother think? And, uh, and then, you know, he kind of comes out of his shell. Uh, but, uh, he was not bad. He, he was okay. It, but that's the thing. I, I guess, I would fault him even more if he was really trying to to be Nicolas Cage, if he was, like, doing some of the same line readings and such like that. Uh, yeah, it, he was, He made it his own uh,
0: without ever coming close to Eclipsing Cage. Okay, yeah, because this is just one of those I cannot – like, this is like trying to picture the mask without Jim Carrey. Like, I, that's trying yeah. to picture Honeymoon in Vegas for me. And again, like you said, the inflections. Like, Nicolas Cage makes up his own line inflections. He makes up his readings. He puts the emphasis in a weird word.
1: Uh, always, yeah. Uh <laughs>
0: All right. I'm dying to get into some of the quotes here. So we'll we'll save that for later. Um, Before we delve into this too much further, I want to say two things. The, uh, uh, The Bruno Mars cameo. It's one thing that has always amused me over the years. You're aware of this, obviously, right?
1: I am aware of it as of today. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, like I was going to say, I, I, I've seen this film many times, and one of the things that makes it so great is I feel like I see a new little thing every time I watch it. And today <laughs> that thing was uh, – well, two things. Uh, uh, the Bruno Mars cameo that I didn't understand was a thing, and then uh, uh, Peter Boyle wearing a Les Miserables shirt. I don't know how I had never seen that before, but uh, that made me laugh out loud.
0: Yeah, for people who don't know what we're talking about with Bruno Mars, that that, that the whole movie takes place in Las Vegas, and there's an Elvis impersonator convention going on the entire movie, and there's all these different variants of Elvis walking around Las Vegas. There's a black Elvis and an Indian Elvis, and I think there's female Elvises. But my favorite is the little... The little kid, like, he looked Indian. I don't know you don't realize he was Filipino. He looked Indian when we were kids. Yeah. But my brother, like, my brother loved that. He was that. That was my brother's favorite character in this movie back when we saw it in 1992. My brother's like, little kid Elvis, that kid is amazing. He's, like, four years old. He's got a little sneer. He's got this big pompadour hair. And turns out 20 years later, oh, that became Bruno Mars. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that kid was going places. Who knew? I, your brother, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, my brother went places too. But yeah, Bruno Mars apparently, when he was a little kid, was a professional Elvis and Michael Jackson impersonator. That's
1: so they amazing. just yanked him. Yeah, they
0: yanked what he was already doing for a living and threw it into a movie. So I just thought that was a cute little thing.
1: That's one of the beauties of the Elvises in the movie. Uh, up until the, uh, the the jump at the end, I feel like most of them. In the film, are just cast from Vegas. These are real Elvis impersonators. They're performers. I mean, you know, most of them have the the singing chops. Uh, the ones that you hear perform. So that's always nice. Uh, it, this is a great Elvis movie too. Uh, whether you're a fan or not, like this is sort of the quintessential uh, tribute. I would say it's he's just everywhere. It, it, almost every film on or uh, almost every song on the soundtrack is an Elvis song. It just it is the ghost haunting this film.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. That's the last thing I want to say before we go into the plot, is that the soundtrack of this movie... Is one of the greatest movie soundtracks ever made, and if people may not know, again, this this movie doesn't really register on most people's radar. But it's all Elvis songs, and the chapters in the DVD menu are all Elvis titles, song titles, and every one of the Elvis songs is a cover. So it's not the original version. It's usually someone like Billy Joel or Dwight Yoakam or like Trisha, or what I think she's in there. Yeah. there's a bunch of singers covering Elvis songs, and I will fully admit, I'm a I'm an old chunk of coal that I still keep some of my old CDs around. I didn't convert everything to digital. I have like 10 CDs left from the 90s, and there's one that I could never bear to throw away, and that's my Honeymoon in Vegas soundtrack. I still have it.
1: I know it's clicking around somewhere in the cabinets of my parents' house somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Would you agree one of the better soundtracks you've ever heard in a movie?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's memorable. It's not just randomly cherry picked songs thrown in or it's like whatever they could license. Like there is real thought that was put behind this. And, uh, and, and yeah, it, you could have just thrown actual Elvis songs in there, but I like the element of the covers is that you're hearing these other voices throughout and uh, it changes the tone. It, when you have a Sarah Jessica Parker sequence or something, it's sort of nice to have a uh, female singing a uh, Elvis song in, in the background. It gives it a, a little romance element.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and I will know that I will say this I know this is blasphemous a little bit but I think some of the covers are better than the Elvis originals
1: <laughs> hey I, I don't know you might be right there I, I I am not a a huge Elvis fan it's certainly influential uh and one of the reasons I love this film is because kind of secretly my favorite, era of Elvis really is the fat old Vegas Elvis. Like I, I love a lot of Elvis's music, but I generally hate most of his movies. The ones I watch regularly though, are his uh, documentaries, his concert documentaries at the end of his life. Uh, That's the way it is. And, uh, uh the other one whatever it's called elvis live in vegas that's not the title don't look it up but uh but yeah and like so that is the kind of tone of this film it's that elvis it's the old washed up over the hill fat elvis uh and that's who all the uh the tribute artists seem to be uh revering i mean he hadn't been gone that long at this point what maybe 15
0: years not even yeah 77 through 92 15 years right on the nose all right, so we, I think we've sufficiently set up this movie. And just to give a quick overview, it's about a guy who goes, with his, goes uh, with his fiance to Las Vegas to get married. He loses very big in a poker game and is forced to hand over his fiance to a professional gambler as, uh, as the payment. And we'll get into that, and we'll delve into is this actually a sexist movie or not, which I have a strong opinion. I'm curious what you're going to say. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, we'll get into that. Okay, so here we go. Are you ready, Johnny, to delve into? And then some. All right. Kabluna, here we go. All right, so this is the story of a young man named Jack Singer, who is supposed to be an everyman, which, again, hilariously played by bug-eyed, screaming Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) And it opens with a little prologue of, like, 1987, that he's with his mom. His mom is dying in the hospital. and Played by
1: the great Anne Bancroft.
0: That is correct. I always forget that's Anne Bancroft, yeah. Right, Mrs. Robinson, right?
1: Yeah, it's one of uh, – yes, and, and one of many uh, little connections to the Mel Brooks oeuvre uh, in this film. <laughs> yes. Because, uh, of course, Andrew Bergman, we should say, uh, wrote the original screenplay to Blazing Saddles, uh, was a good – or is a good friend of Mel Brooks's, And uh, I have seen Mel Brooks' live several times. I, I see him interviewed a lot. He recycles anecdotes constantly. I never hear him say something I haven't heard him say ten times before. But one thing he will frequently say is that this is one of his favorite comedies ever.
0: Ah, good. I see. I'm glad I have good taste, because I knew for years I was defending this movie and nobody else did. So I'm very excited that Mel Brooks is in our corner here.
1: Oh, yeah. Big time.
0: Yeah. And you were saying, for some people who may not know this, this movie has Mel Brooks connections. Explain oh, oh. who Anne Bancroft is in relation to Mel Brooks.
1: Oh, of course. Well, Mel Brooks uh, was married to Anne Bancroft for decades, up until her death uh, just uh, eight or nine years ago. And uh, so, uh, yeah, the, her cameo is, I think, you know, it's it's maybe a, a friendly thing that I, I think they're uh, Bergman and Brooks and Anne were friendly, and uh, it's, she's a lovely presence in this film. Perfectly saying up, it's like what it's it's the scene lasts maybe a minute, but it's so great it gets things rolling.
0: She's a lovely presence, even though she's a horrible specter hanging <laughs> over his head. Exactly, <laughs> you get this like sweet old
1: woman on her deathbed, and then. The first thing she says, basically, is never get married. Never. Uh, Yeah. Uh.
0: Yeah, so Anne Bancroft is his mom, and we start the movie with her on her deathbed. She's dying, and her beloved son, Jack, rushes into the hospital to hear his mom's last words. And her last words are basically, never get married because no woman will love you like I did. Of course, he's yeah. like, I can't, I can't do that, mom. That's unfair. And she's like, Ugh, and she dies. And he's like, no. So, yeah,
1: instantly, she's gone. Yeah, mom, 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 mom. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's gonna stick with him. I mean, he, it just shows Nicolas Cage's perfect casting in this film even more. To ha- to start things off, showing this crazy woman who raised him. It's like, oh, okay. Now I understand why this guy is who he is. If this is his mother.
0: Yes, and we can also end his first scene in the movie with him screaming, which will set the tone nicely. Not the last time you'll hear him screaming. Yeah, he, he, likes, he likes to put in a scream once in a while. So Nicolas Cage has a specter hanging over his head that his mother is prom- made him promise never to get married. And this is a problem because we're about to learn he has the most perfect fiancé in the world, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Her, name is, or her character's name is Betsy Nolan, and what, she's a school teacher?
1: Uh, yeah. Although I do want to point out quickly before we get into that, it's worth noting immediately after him screaming, you get another sign that you are watching a nineties movie in that you are watching an animated opening credits. That that was like a staple in the early nineties, especially, you know, city slickers and, uh, and the like. And it, it always just makes me happy when I get to watch a little cartoon at the start of my movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a very intricate opening credit sequence. I, I always watch it. I'm like, wow, they spent a lot of time on this opening credit. It's like a whole yeah, little yeah. cartoon.
1: Yeah, I wondered if it was because like in the early 90s it was a you know kind of the height of that you know Spike and Mike animation festival era. There were a lot <laughs> of animated shorts like being shown theatrically and I, I don't know, maybe they were all just getting jobs this way. But it, it's always a nice little perk.
0: I can't believe someone referenced Spike and Mike animation festival on my podcast cuz I used to go to that thing all the time and I've never known anybody else who did.
1: Oh no, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, so yeah, so Jack Singer is a private investigator in New York, and he investigates cheating spouses. So all day long, he follows wives and husbands around that are cheating on people, and this reinforces— And already,
1: already, that's all you need. Like, I mean, that that's a movie right there. Nicolas Cage, private investigator investigating cheating spouses. I mean, I'll watch that for two hours. You don't even need the Vegas stuff and any of that. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, we get more story. But, hey, I mean, you know, if you're ever going to spin this off, Nick, I mean, I'll, I'm you know, take my money. <laughs>
0: So you're saying the Vegas sub- subplot is just the spinoff of the regular movie? Well, I've seen the spin-off. I,
1: I guess it's just a testament to I'll, I'll watch Nicolas Cage do anything. You know, just give him any slightly eccentric profession and I'm there for it.
0: OK, so I should point out Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't know if we're going to talk about her much on this podcast, but if I recall this was only like her second movie. And I remember she came out in LA story and she played Sandy, the skating girl, and she was like this ditzy cheerleader. And like, this was her first movie where she played like an actual grown-up, if I recall.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing. She was like a teenage actress. Like she was on square pegs and uh, she was in girls just want to have fun and flight of the navigator. But that was when she was like kind of vaguely awkward teeny. I think that L.A. Story was the first time like she showed up and was like, look, I'm a woman and I'm wearing costumes to really emphasize that, uh, if I can uh, allude to her figure. Um, But yeah, this this was a pretty early like kind of headlining thing for her as like a romantic lead. Like even in L.A. Story, she's kind of the uh, sort of side antagonist, uh, you know, the other woman, if you will.
0: Yeah. And I do think she and Cage actually have really good chemistry chemistry in this. I think I think both of them do a great job. I totally buy their relationship.
1: Absolutely. I, it's really well established in those early scenes where it just shows like, oh, what a great girlfriend she is. Oh, she'll, you know, make me a sandwich during my poker game and she'll do a little joke about my hand. And, oh, then I'll take her on my uh, little outings uh, where I'm tracking some guy who's cheating on his wife and she'll like help me tail him. It, like, it, it's just, yeah, you, you get the sense that they really care about each other and that she's a fun girl to have around. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, Cage's job or Jack Singer's job is he's a private investigator and he sees all these cheating spouses. So it is reinforced in his mind that marriage is a joke, that it's always a disaster. It never works out. People just hurt each other. And so this is the – between that and his mom's, you know, grim reaper hanging over his head, the promise, he just will not marry Betsy. And this is a problem because Betsy will only wait for him for so long. Yeah.
1: And she's getting impatient. You have that scene where they're in bed together. Everything's great. She's like, oh, come here, you big boy. And and then what it cuts to a few months later. And his narration says, like, well, she wouldn't stay over every night. And when she did, things just weren't the same. You you see them back to back, opposite sides of the bed. And uh, so, yeah, it's tick tock. It's you know, he has to uh, pull the trigger on this or lose her forever. Yeah.
0: And again, of course, she eventually gives him an ultimatum. She's like, please you marry me. I need kids. I need a relationship. And he eventually he cuts through all his fear. He's like, fine, we'll get married. And she's like, really? And he's like, we have to tomorrow or I'm going to back out. Let's just fly to Vegas and we'll pick out, you know, the the, the little wedding chapel and get married tomorrow. And she's like, really? And he's like, yes, let's do it. And so this will set forth the motion and uh, this will set forth the rest of the plot. And uh, all comedy goes from here.
1: Yeah, even his narration says, "If only I hadn't said Vegas, I could have said anywhere, but I said Vegas." Uh.
0: Yeah, it's okay. So, we're gonna cut to Vegas, and this will be the most, the rest of the movie, or this will be most of the rest of the movie in Las Vegas, where they fly there and they go to the Bally's Hotel, which is near and dear to my heart. That's the hotel that my family always stayed in when we were in Vegas. So, it's really going to ask
1: you. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd ever been. I, I myself have never been to Vegas, and I feel like it could only disappoint me now because this is what I would want to see if I uh, if I ever went there.
0: Yeah, this movie is '90s Vegas. It's it was not very ritzy. It wasn't super high end. Families with kids could go there, and like it was there was lots of free, cheap entertainment like shows and stuff. Just walking along the strip, it's much more higher end now with like Gordon Ramsay with the steakhouses there and everything. Sure. It's totally different. But this movie, like, yeah, we, go, we went to Vegas all the time. I grew up in Seattle, so we were always going down to Vegas. It's so only like an hour, two-hour flight away or something like that. But we always stayed in the valleys. And what's funny is when I watch this movie, I can smell it. I can smell mm-hmm. this movie. I know exactly where they're standing. I know what that lobby smells like and sounds like. So, yeah, it's, it's very uh, – it's, uh, <laughs> it's almost like a homecoming for me watching this movie. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, that, I, I'm envious of you. You know, it's uh, I, I get a little of that. I'm from Northern California. I would go to Reno or Tahoe occasionally, but never the real deal. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, this is what you could do in the 90s for people who are much younger, like, or Johnny here who's never been to Vegas. This was my, my experience in Vegas when I was about 12. We'd go there to the Bally's. My mom would say, here's $10. Go down to the arcade, because there was an arcade in the bottom of the basement of the Bally's. You see it later in the movie where Sarah Jessica Parker says, you turned me into a whore. That's in the arcade. <laughs> yes. And I was expected to make that $10 last the entire day so my parents could gamble. And I just wander through Vegas by myself and try to make $10 last.
1: I had a very similar experience. Uh, I was with my dad one night staying at, I think, like, Caesars Palace, something like that, in Reno. And, uh, and yeah, I I just made that arcade my home. And, boy, oh, boy, was that a – Dark, creepy, arcadey basement. I, I, there was no supervision for me, and um, I think I was with a friend.
0: And oh yeah, the horrible things could happen <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. but again, it was fairly family friendly. I guess. I mean, it was the you knew you we were self-contained if you stayed in the valleys. And yeah, I, I guess so. There was one story where my my parents would, you know, they ditched me and they said, you know, we'll meet you for dinner. And at one point, I know during the evening, like at midnight or one in the morning, I was in the Bally's coffee shop getting some pie, and they wandered in and they're like, Isn't that our ten year old son over there in the coffee shop? (laughs) Uh,
1: it was a different time. We we needed less supervision. oh
0: gosh, yeah. So anyway, we're in Vegas now and Jack and Betsy are there to get married, and Jack is still petrified. And this is where we meet the third character in this movie, who is uh, Tommy Corman, a professional gambler. And I'll give you the honor, Johnny, explain Tommy Corman to our listeners.
1: Tommy Corman, well, this is a really interesting thing. James Kahn plays this old school Vegas gambler who, you know, he's already looking around the city and maybe not recognizing everything that he once loved about it. Like he, he sees it changing. I would hate to imagine what he would think about it today, but, uh, yeah, he comes in, he, he, he flies in unannounced and expects his uh same suite to be waiting for him. Uh Tony Shaloub is playing the uh the hotel concierge manager and uh, and he he has uh, actually refused that suite on his uh, first arrival and uh he says, you know, you get me my suite. You get my suite. And Tony Shaloub says, uh, the king of where uh where is it? Uh it's the
0: president of Brazil.
1: President of Brazil, that's it. I knew it was either royalty or so, someone up there. President of Brazil is staying there. and uh, But, yeah, just uh, one squeeze of Tony Shalhoub's balls, and uh, it's, he's going to get that sweep.
0: Yeah. This is what we need to know about Tommy Corman. He is a professional gambler with enough pull in Las Vegas that he can kick the president of Brazil out of his personal suite. So this is not a man you want to mess with. He's very powerful, and he has a lot of pull here.
1: Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll table this a bit, but I do want to talk more about Tommy later in this episode because I, I always uh, am curious uh, to hear others' thoughts about, like, yeah, who this guy is because we only know so much, and I always theorize, you know, what his backstory really is.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I will give you the short version. We'll talk more about it later, but it's it's interesting that Tommy's character tends to change in the movie depending on how they need the story to go.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it, things get a little dark later on. And, yeah. He's uh, not
0: dark at the start, but he becomes dark later.
1: Yeah. Uh, and he has a lovable sidekick as well. Uh, Johnny Sandwich. Okay. And, I,
0: uh, I always forget his name.
1: Yeah, well, it's easy to remember that he he is Johnny Sandwich, played by Johnny Williams, and uh, just a couple of years before that, he was playing Johnny Roast Beef in Goodfellas. So this clearly must have been an intentional little jab at that, a little little homage. Uh, he wasn't really a professional actor then. I don't know his backstory necessarily if uh, he he came from that world at all it's altogether possible but uh yeah i i love him as a character he is constantly eating throughout this movie he, there's a chase scene later in the film where he actually stops through the kitchen to taste some marinara sauce he grabs a loaf of bread and starts dipping it in a pot i i just love that it's just a subtle
0: little moment but uh, i love it <laughs> it's a- so he wasn't even an actor. He was just some Italian guy that liked to eat. They found on the crew and they like put in. Although he downgraded. He was Johnny Roast Beef and now he's just Johnny Sandwich. So clearly his his career's on a downslide.
1: Well, Johnny Roast Beef, you imagine, he was heavy in the mob. And this guy, I don't know, a little cuddlier, a little nicer, just a sandwich. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then a couple of years later, he plays Johnny Hot Pocket.
1: <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah so so uh tommy corman the gambler is wandering around las vegas and he sees betsy he sees sarah jessica parker and she's at the check-in desk with nicholas cage and lo and behold she is a dead ringer for tommy corman's dead wife that apparently tommy had this wife that he loved and doted on and she was the love donna. of his life yeah donna just like richie valens donna mm-hmm. And she died. She died of skin cancer because she went outside in the sun too much. She died at a young age.
1: Yeah, she had an amazing tan, always by the pool, of course. You know, Vegas, what, 110 degrees in the summer or, or higher. And, uh, and yeah, she, she probably looked amazing. But, uh, yeah, she died of melanoma, which is not usually movie-friendly cancer. You, there's not a lot of melanoma in movies. But she died of melanoma, and I just love that line when he's wistfully talking about her to uh, Johnny Sandwich and says – <sighs> Should have got her out of the sun. Uh, it's 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 so. I mean, it's it's sweet and sad, but it's also really funny. Like, oh uh, god, if only I got her out of the sun. I, I think that's a whole song in the uh, musical.
0: Yeah, Las Vegas in the summer is no joke. You will die. That's what I call old person killing weather. You do not go outside. It's, but yeah, I'd say. And he's he's very sweet. Tommy Corman's very sweet at the start of the movie that he really loved his girl his wife and he's so wistful. And when he sees Sarah Jessica Parker, it drives him insane because they're like twins. They could be twin sisters. And he this is where he concocts a plan. Like, I wanna get with that girl and I gotta get her away from that schmuck who's over there screaming <laughs> Nicolas Cage and so this is where we concoct the plan and where the the crux of this movie comes in is that Nicolas Cage and or Jack and Betsy are gonna go get married and Tommy will will uh detour them slightly by saying hey before you get married how about we do a friendly little poker game
1: (laughs) yeah a a poker game for new guests that's a common thing because you know there's just a few new guests that come into vegas every day and you know just a handful of them get invited to the top floor for a friendly poker game yeah a few red flags there
0: yeah, although I should point out that Nicolas Cage and his, and Betsy have, have uh, shelled out for the Alibaba suite, which is basically yes. the Rain Man suite. So they're in this huge penthouse, and they get a little invitation slipped under their door. And what I love about this movie is that Jack is cocky because, you know, Jack plays in a game back in the city. I play a weekend poker game. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are just some yokels, some small-town people that I'll just hustle out of some money. It'll be real easy. Yeah, I'll
1: take these rubes. I'll be back in two hours.
0: <laughs> and Betsy's like... I don't know if this is a good idea. Maybe we should get married. He's like, nah, I'll just, look, they're even going to comp me $1,000. There's no way I can lose. So long story short, let's go into how he loses.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I guess it's, uh, it's unclear. Is everyone in the room in on this? I, I you have some other good character actors here. You have Seymour Cassell at the table, uh, who is, uh, all business, you know, let's play cards, let's play cards. Uh, uh, Keone Young, who, who you would later see in shows like, uh, Deadwood and stuff like that. He's very recognizable. Uh, and so they're all around this table and I think that they all must be, you know, friends of Tommy's, right? So they all know what's happening. And, uh, Tommy uh, sets it up so uh, Nicholas Cage is, uh, you know, made comfortable or, you know, uh, Jack is made very comfortable in, uh, oh, wow, he's he's doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, he almost leaves pretty early on, but he, he convinces him to stay. It's like, here, I'll give you an extra thousand in credit. Come on. J- j- it's fun. If you win it, you can pay me back. And if you lose it, no hard feelings. So uh, but then he really starts to play well. Starts to play a little too well. Like, uh, uh, one of my my complaints about this is that, not a complaint, but one thing that's always struck me in this film is that they're always a little too accepting. Like, uh, Betsy does at one point say, like, the game, I think the game is fixed, but Jack doesn't ever accuse him of that and it seems so so obvious he gets this straight flush he has a straight flush to the jack i love that you know Nick's line reading there like straight to the jack uh, but uh he, he has it and then uh jimmy khan flips over his card and says to the queen and uh oh that gasp of air from cage that, that like that pan in on his face like oh, oh it's just perfect
0: What I love about this scene in particular is I don't know how to play poker. I'm really hapless when they do card scenes in movies like gambling and stuff. Yeah. And, like, I've seen Rounders, and I don't know what's going on in Rounders. It's, it's confusing to me because I just don't have a background. But the way they explain it in this movie, like any – I'll use the, the parlance of Nicolas Cage. Any yokel can figure out what's going on because they explain it very well. That mm-hmm. Basically, Nicolas Cage has what he thinks is an unbeatable hand, and they even explain it. And then James Kahn has his hand that's slightly more unbeatable, just barely. And Nicolas Cage, I think Sarah Jessica Parker – Sarah Jessica Parker later says it was like three million to one that he would beat him on that hand, but like you said, Nicolas Cage never suspects that it was fixed because I think it's because he has overconfidence because he plays yeah. in a game and he does he does not con- have any uh, concept that someone could outplay him.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, that hand is uh, virtually Im- unbeatable, and uh, which he repeats again and again. <laughs> yes. And uh, and and when he uh, he says to her, he says it, it, it's an unbeatable hand. She says, well, not entirely unbeatable. He says. My favorite line of this whole film, or at least my favorite line reading, like, hey, I know that now. He practically sings it. It's it's just – and, you know, as big as he gets throughout this film, I think that's the peak. It, it never gets bigger than that. It's just so uh, – <laughs> chef's kiss beautiful. Uh,
0: Nicolas Cage singing a line for no reason.
1: <laughs> yeah, and as I alluded to earlier, uh, if I am ever in a uh, disagreement with my wife and she points something out to me, I, w- I have been known to shout out – In response, yay, I know that now, because I I just can't not.
0: (laughs) Okay, we're actually not even to that scene yet, so we'll set that up in a minute here, but it's, yeah, that's, I love it. Okay, so... Nicholas Cage loses it. He has a straight flush and he loses cuz James Conn has a better straight flush. And all of a sudden this pot that everyone thought was a joke, this little joke, you know, poker game is now up to $65,000. And Jack has nowhere near that money. He's been borrowing money this whole time and he thought he was so confident that this was a joke game. He didn't realize he was in that much to a professional gambler and he's like, "Oh my god, I just lost and Again, there's a running joke throughout the movie that you can't lose poker with a straight flush, even though Jack does that, <laughs> and it will come up again. But anyway, that's the, the moral of the story here is Jack is now in $65,000 to a professional gambler who could kill him, and Jack is panicking. And this is the one thing I wanted to bring up that a lot of people say about this movie, oh, that's the one where the guy bets his fiance in a poker game. And that's not true at all. That's not what happens.
1: No, yeah. Uh, not at all. No. Uh This is – I mean it's all part of Tommy's plan from the start is like I am going to get this guy in such a bind that he will have no choice but to grant me a request. And uh it's his casual suggestion that like, hey, maybe we call off the debt. Just let me – Spend a weekend with your wife. Uh, you know, a very gentle and reasonable request. He plays it. And, uh, uh, Jack is having none of this. Uh, but he's also in a complete bind. He has no money. He, uh, he has no parents, that, uh, to, to, to give it to him. Betsy even says my parents can't pay it. So, uh, yeah, what, what is he to do? He, uh, he has no options at this point.
0: Yeah. Okay. One thing before we get to Nicholas Cage will be screaming the entire rest of the movie and we'll get to that in a second. I I forgot to point out one cameo in the uh, poker game. And this Mm -hmm. is one that a lot of people don't know. You may not know this. I'm guessing you're probably not a sports guy, like a college basketball guy, Uh,
1: college basketball less. So, you know, I, I dabble a little in the sport world.
0: Okay, there's a famous basketball coach named Jerry Tarkanian who used to coach, and he was the coach of UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas at the time. Very distinctive face. He looked like a hound dog, and he was always chewing Mm. on his white towel. He always had a white towel in his mouth. Oh, so –
1: Is he the guy eating the sandwich repeatedly? That's the guy. That's the
0: guy. Yeah, there's a guy in the poker game. That's Jerry Tarkanian, and he's always eating either a napkin or a sandwich. It's kind of an homage to him. So I just want to throw that out there for people who might know that.
1: Interesting. I was trying to look up everyone who was at the table because I had forgotten that Seymour Cassell was in it until I saw this like last month. I was like,
0: oh, is everyone like someone of
1: note? And like to me, just the name didn't mean anything to me. But I did note that this guy is always eating a sandwich. It's like I don't think it's because he's a bad extra or something. This is clearly planned. But. But, uh, it, it's, he, he has a great face.
0: Yeah. And here's the irony is that there's a character named Johnny Sandwich in this movie, and it's not the guy who's repeatedly eating a sandwich. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so so Jack has been given the ultimatum. Either you owe me $65,000, or just as a gentleman, let me spend the weekend with your fiancé. <laughs> and, and Jack's like, no. He's like, there's no way my girlfriend would do this. And the gambler's like, yeah, I kind of think she will if she loves you, because you're in trouble if you don't. So... Now comes the comedy for the rest of the movie where Nicholas Cage has to go explain to his girlfriend what happened and how she is now the chattel property of, of Tommy Corman, the gambler. And I love Nicholas Cage in the scene, the body language of him just yeah. staggering out to talk to her. He looks like a boxer who's just been through 10 rounds. He looks, he's, he's punch drunk. He's like, how the hell am I going to have this conversation with Betsy right now?
1: Yeah. I, you really feel for him. I, he is totally in the wrong. I mean, he, he doesn't know that he was cheated, so he thinks he's in the wrong at least. And uh, he, But he's up against a wall. Like he can't do anything to make this better, so he just has to beg her of this, uh, which it's oh, – <laughs> it, it, it's simultaneously hilarious and really sad. You feel for him. You want to just shake him and say, oh, the game was fixed. Come on, guy. You know, Man up and – but uh, but he does ask his uh, his bookie friend, uh, half uh, bookie, half dentist in New York, like, is this guy like for real? Like, is this guy serious? And once he says the name, uh, you know, Tommy Corman, it's like, oh no, oh god, dude, this guy's a, up up uh, up to sixty five grand to Tommy Corman. It's like,
0: oh yeah, you uh, you are lucky if
1: he's giving you an out. So you got to take it.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's so many. I just have little quotes circled on my notes. All, so many little one-liners and quips. And the line that la- makes me laugh here is where. Jack is talking to his bookie and he's like, yeah, it's Tommy Corman that I owe money to. And then he tells uh, Betsy, he's like, oh, Sal's heard of him. And then Betsy's like, oh, great. I'd hate to be shacked up with a small timer.
1: <laughs> I uh, have that written down as well. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, so here's your quote. We're going to set up your quote that you love, the singing line, where <laughs> Jack has to go talk to Betsy. And this is the quote that I love. And it's funny because it's right before the one that you love where Jack has to explain how he lost this poker. He's like, you don't understand. I had a straight flush. Do you know what a straight flush is? It's like unbeatable. And she's like, like unbeatable is not unbeatable. And then we follow with your line. Hey, I know that now.
1: <laughs> I can do that all night.
0: <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times I've used that quote over the years. Like unbeatable is not unbeatable.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's wisdom in her words. Yeah, she, she knows. She knows better
0: than he. And then they go down into the Bally's arcade. And again, this is where I always was as a kid. And you can see all the kids in the scene. And it's hilarious because Sarah Jessica Parker's like, she's like, I won't sleep with him. You know, I'm not going to walk around in her clothes. I'm just going to hang out with him. And he's like, that's fine. You don't have to do that. And then she comes to the realization, I'm a whore, Jack. (laughs) You've (laughs) made me a whore. You brought me to Las Vegas and you turned me into a whore. (laughs) And it's right in front of all these little kids looking around like, hey, whore talk in the arcade. Score.
1: She's really great in this. I do think that of the three, she kind of get kind of gets short shrifted, at least in the latter half of the film. Like she kind of is forced to only react to so many situations, you know, certainly to Jack and then also as she's being sort of wooed by Khan uh, later on. But she really is great. I think that uh, she was almost never funnier than in this film.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And she just uh, you get overshadowed by Nicolas Cage screaming his lines, but she holds her yeah, own. It's
1: hard to compete.
0: So we go down to the 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 bally's uh, nightclub or whatever, and this is where we Jack gets, or uh, Betsy gets introduced to Tommy Corman, and They're like this will be your escort for the weekend. And and Jack, poor Nicholas Cage, just this haunted look in his eyes that he's introducing his fiance to this gambler. And uh, and this the great scene oh, where
1: no, yeah, he says, "Yeah, it's just a get acquainted meeting." And he that that laugh, that seething laugh that
0: he does, where oh, he just wants to punch him in the face, but he can't. And this whole scene, this meeting scene, is it's a nice scene, but it's not the thing that you remember about it. Because what you remember about this scene is there's this Elvis concert going on in the background with all yeah. these impersonators. And this is where you see the black Elvis and Indian Elvis and Asian Elvis. And you do see little Bruno Mars as four-year-old Elvis in the blue jumpsuit. And you cannot forget him. He's so memorable.
1: He really is. And, I mean, I always remembered that kid, even though I had no idea it was him until just today.
0: So... So Betsy sits down, and she she's having none of this. I'm not going to go with this gambler. I'm not going to spend the weekend with him. This is creepy. And he basically lays out his story. You know, my wife died. It was very sad. I really loved her. And he's like, I have no ill intentions. I would just like to get to know you, spend the weekend, have some nice memories, and you'll meet my kids and stuff. And he kind of softens her right off the bat because he's not creepy. And, again, that's the important thing, that Tommy Corman is not creepy until later in the movie. Yeah. And he's very honest with her about Betsy. I mean, uh,
1: Donna, the the resemblance and like, yeah, this is important to me. And she was very dear to me. And I just want to sort of have that feeling of being with her again. You know, no sex, none of that. It's just, you know, I I just want to show you a nice time. And uh, hey, guess what? I have a place in Hawaii. Yeah,
0: that's when he drops the hammer on her. By the way, we're not going to be spending the weekend here. It'll be in Hawaii. And she's like, well, nobody said that. And he said, well, I just said the weekend. It didn't say it had to be here. And so Jack is unaware of this. And and when Jack finds out Betsy is going to Hawaii for the weekend, this is where he really flips. And this is maybe my personal favorite scene in the movie because we get a trio of Nicolas Cage screamed lines here. (laughs) So, what happens is they go back up to their hotel room, and Betsy's like, Well, I have to pack. And Jack's like, All right, we can leave. And she's like, No, I'm going to Hawaii. And this is where Nicolas Cage starts Nicolas Caging, even by Nicolas Cage standards. Where He's like, yeah, this is full on like sitcom at this point. Like, you know, it's, it's like he's on a soundstage. He is playing to a live audience. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Make sure that people in the back of the theater hear my voice here. That's where he's going. Yeah. You're so blithe about this. Like, you don't give a damn. And then I, I, I apologize for me trying to do a Nicolas Cage impression because it will blow out my voice. But he's like... What if you start screaming? It's like, it's like a jungle out there. And he's like, he's got <laughs> servants and he's got bodyguards. And believe me, they will drug you. <laughs> and then she tries to reassure him by
1: saying like, no, it's not going to be like that. Even his kid will be there. And I don't know his name, but she knows his name. To which Nicholas Cage replies, she knows the kid's names already. Yes.
0: Us? It's already us? <laughs> yeah. That's that's the movie that wins the, – the, this is the scene that wins me over and has always made me quote this movie because we're just – Nicolas Cage overacts crazily in this scene.
1: <laughs> so – You can't call it overacting, Miss Nicolas Cage. If anything, it's it's either just right or maybe you go a little bit bigger.
0: I don't know. <laughs> just give it a try for a take. Come on, Cage. It's just called acting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so – so uh, this is where Betsy and Tommy get out, get out, take a limo and fly off to Hawaii. And Jack is totally panicking now. Not only has he lost his girlfriend to a gambler, but now they're off at his mansion where she's being drugged by his bodyguards. Now he's panicking and he's terrified. And so he has to get out of Vegas. Yeah, so he... I, I
1: always forget he goes back to New York, that he's not just in Vegas and could easily just go straight to Hawaii. Yeah, he, he is on his own. He tries, you know, he tries to make the deal work. Yeah, he goes back to work, to which he is only distracted by this client. Which I forgot to mention earlier. Another way you can tell you're watching a '90s movie is you have Robert Costanzo in there uh, as this uh, middle-aged man who is convinced that his wife is having an affair with Mike Tyson, and uh, and you know. No matter how much Jack tries to reassure him, no, it's not Mike Tyson. I'm sure that your friends are just playing, you know, a little joke on you because they they doctor up a photo to make it look like she's with Mike Tyson and like that. And uh, But, yeah, and the, the guy says to him in, in his office, like, God, can you imagine what it's like having the woman that you love with another man and you can't do anything about it? It's like, oh, yeah, and he's
0: just mm. – Seething there. Yeah. Do you know what it's like? Some creepy guy sneaking up behind your girl, his hands all over her, his greasy hands caressing her. And Nicolas Cage is like, I kind of do know what that's like, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I didn't a few
1: days ago when uh, I saw you, but uh, yeah, now your words are ringing true. <laughs> I always think when i'm watching this movie like that there's going to be a moment where he's in vegas and he's going to see uh mike tyson in a little cameo with the guy's wife like it would be too much it would be too big but it's almost that kind of movie where you can almost throw something that ridiculous into the fold where it's like oh gosh maybe he wasn't crazy but uh no i'm glad he they showed some restraint there
0: okay so jack is now panicking and fantasizing what he thinks is going on in Vegas or in Hawaii. And we're going to cut to Hawaii. And this is where the movie starts to get really sweet, actually. And I kind of yeah, forgot, it's... like it's very touching the Tommy and, and Betsy scenes in Hawaii.
1: Yeah, it's, I think that, uh, like I said earlier, that James Conn is really sweet and cuddly in this role. And you have to imagine that maybe he's not such a great guy, but you see some potential there. And clearly he's a family man, or he has a family. Who knows much about that? But yeah, the scenes of him just sort of enjoying themselves out there and going on a hike that is just killing him he cannot keep up with a you know what 28 year old in her prime sarah jessica parker climbing up a mountainside and you know there's that shot where she's looking down where is he he's on the ground but then he lifts up a little yellow flower for her
0: it's it's very sweet and you start to wonder it's like i don't know he's he's not so bad right right yeah i was gonna say it's like it's like the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner in this movie because as the movie goes along you start thinking you know, James Caan is actually probably the better fit for Betsy. <laughs> like he's, he really does love her, and he's very sweet. And even though the game was a fix, he's very nice to her and gentle. And it's like later in the movie, you almost think he he kind of makes a point when he starts telling her, you'd be better off with me. And it's like the writers have to suddenly make the character evil, so you want her to go back with Jack. It's, like, it's kind of interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think there's a tinge of darkness throughout there because you have to imagine, like, yes, he does maybe love her, but maybe for the wrong reasons. I mean, it, he says it's not just the superficial, you look just like Donna, but that's certainly where it starts. So there's always an air of creepiness throughout it, even though at his best, he seems very sweet and sincere and like he can make this work with her or, you know, but it, it, you know, once he starts to, uh, to throw in a few extra lies throughout the weekend as he starts to get more serious and actually proposes marriage himself. He starts to get a little too cocky. I think in making up stuff that even she is sensing some red flags, like really, he says, uh, uh, oh, no, he, he he was the one who offered you up. This wasn't some arrangement I made. He bet you. He bet you. I mean, maybe that's where some people mistake this uh, film in that way. Uh, and, uh, oh, 65,000? No, he was only down 3,000. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. Now, I mean, just, come on, Betsy. You know that this guy is no good. Uh, and, you know, she knows it too, but it's, she's still, like, kind of hypnotized by Hawaii and uh, oh, the gorgeous ring he gives her. And, yeah, she doesn't know. It takes her a little longer. It's okay.
0: Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. That's definitely, that's where it goes. It's it's, this part of the movie. It's still very sweet. And he takes her to his beachfront condo in Kauai. And she's got like the most beautiful bedroom I've ever seen in a house where it's like, it's like she has this sliding glass door that opens right to the Pacific ocean out of her what 1500 square foot bedroom. And she's like, wow, this is pretty impressive. Yeah,
1: a, a girl could get awfully comfortable there. Yeah.
0: Although I'm I'm skipping over one character here and this is a guy I have to point out. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, his yeah. is uh Tommy Corman's butler, is a guy named Nico who is played by an actor named Danny Kamakona. Now, do you know much about Danny Kamakona?
1: I don't. I looked him up earlier, but like
0: it's uh you know, just nice to see uh, uh some local casting there I All guess. All right, I will I will blow your mind. Well, I'll blow maybe not your mind, but ever, a lot of my, my listeners' minds here. That guy, I just did a podcast on Karate Kid Part 2, and that is Sato. That is the evil Sato who wants to kill Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid Part 2. He plays the kindly butler in this. And I will blow people's minds even further by saying that actor, Danny Kamakona, was like best friends with Pat Morita, who played Mr. Miyagi. Mm. They They were like best buddies in Hawaii, and they're in almost every movie together. If you watch this movie, if you watch Karate Kid 2, and there's one called uh, uh, the one where Jay Leno and and Uh, Pat Morita. I was
1: just about to say the Jay Leno movie, whatever that's called. Collision Course? Collision Course, yeah, but Pat
0: Morita and Danny Kamakona are in that one as well. So that's Sato, and that's Pat Morita's best buddy who was always in movies with him.
1: Soul coward, you return interesting i have not seen karate kid part two since i was a kid and i was going to maybe revisit it in anticipation of your episode that i know you've recorded uh so uh yeah if, I, if i'd done these in a different order i might have uh, been ahead of you on that one but uh yeah good to hear yeah
0: but i love that guy but anyway he's he's tommy corman's right hand man and he's selling this illusion and he's like you know mr corman is a god over here and he'll like take him on a little canoe ride romantic canoe ride so this this nico guy is very instrumental in corman's illusion of love for betsy
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's laying it on pretty thick and everyone is playing a part. Everyone is there doing their thing. And it's uh, it's uh, very effective. You you can it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that she is being sincerely seduced by this guy.
0: So. As she's being sweetly seduced by the most beloved, the most benevolent rich person ever in Hawaii, Nicolas Cage is going crazy back in New York. And now he decides, I have to go to Hawaii to find her. I have to head this off because he's terrified that he's going to lose her. And here year ago, yet another Mario favorite scene in in uh, Moon in Vegas where Nicolas Cage screams at the phone operator where he's calling oh, up. Yeah. Yeah, he's calling up. He's like, yeah, I'm looking for a T. Corman or a Tommy Corman in Kauai. And he's like, where there's sections of kawaii <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> i love that sections of Kauai. <laughs> yeah so anyway he's not having the greatest of luck and he's just watching the news and you know as 90s movies would go surprisingly he sees them on the news because they're at a Mount Kilauea on, a, on the other side of the island has erupt, erupted. Uh, Tommy and Betsy are going to watch it erupt with his kids. And Nicolas Cage happens to see them on the news. He's like, oh. Well,
1: I would like to point out that as a New Yorker, I will often turn on the news. And they will have stories about volcanoes erupting in Hawaii. It's very common over in New York because not much is happening here, I tell you. Okay.
0: Now, have you often seen the love of your life who is on a mission with another man on the news when you watch that? Oh, that's just pure coincidence, and, but thank God it happens. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he sees them. He's like, oh, my God, they're in Kauai. That's where they are. They're by Mount Kilauea. So Jack immediately goes to the airport, and he's going to fly to head them off. And this is where, again, I, I hate that I keep saying this, another Mario favorite scene in this movie where Cage erupts at someone, yeah. where he meets Ben Stein. Yes,
1: well, again, it's a, it's an 80s slash 90s movie. You have to have Ben Stein there doing his Ben Stein thing.
0: I'll let you explain this. Well, let me set it up that I believe this is the number two greatest Ben Stein movie moment after the, of course, Ferris Bueller one. But yeah. this would be my second.
1: I, I think I'd agree with you on that one. Uh, you know, I don't know Ben Stein a, a little lower in my eyes uh, in uh, in recent years, but uh, he sure was great in uh, those those films. Um, and yeah, so there's a very long line at the airport uh, to to get to the ticket counter, and uh, you know th- this is. Pre-internet. You can't just, like, you know, click and make a reservation. You you either go through a travel agent, remember those, or you have to go to the airport and buy a ticket in person. And Ben Stein is at the front of the line asking every possible variant of question he can for his flight three weeks from then to his nephew's wedding. Is that it? Or bar mitzvah? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, bar mitzvah. Yeah, and uh, – <laughs> And so Nicolas Cage is at the back of the line saying, like, oh, don't you see there's people here? And he he goes up. He's like, you're not even flying today. And then it all culminates with, you know, he's he's causing a scene. You know, they are going to have to do something to this man yelling in the line at the airport to which he says, what are you going to do? Put me in airport jail, which, uh, yeah, it's it doesn't get much better than that.
0: I think that was my brother's all-time favorite movie quote. He used to quote that endlessly. Like if you someone threatened him, he's like, "Then what? You're going to arrest me? Put me in airport jail?" <laughs> And of course, this is pre-9-11.
1: Now we all know, oh yeah, there's airport jail. Yeah, they've got those. But back then, it was an innocent time, and the thought of airport jail was so absurd that you needed Nicolas Cage to scream it to emphasize that point.
0: Although it's a very popular scene because he yells at Ben Stein to get your ticket. What do you say? He says, get your goddamn ticket and move on! And now all the people in line applaud. So it's one of those lines in the movie theater people would have applauded for him sticking it to an annoying guy in front of the line
1: please sir if you don't get back on
0: then what i'll be arrested put in airport jail just get your ticket and move on okay get your goddamn ticket and move on
1: it is nice that that at least jack has someone on his side in the scene it's not just that he's the crazy guy yelling at ben stein like everyone knows no ben stein is the villain of this scene He, he deserves everything he gets
0: that's right someone should take that guy's money
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh people remember that game show <laughs> oh yeah, yeah the jimmy kimmel win ben stein's money oh good wow i i apologize for the you know, five seconds of silence I gave you to that because, like, oh, I, it had completely slipped my mind. But, oh, yeah, I used to watch that all the time. That's,
0: I, oh, that's okay. I pull more references out of my butt than a proctologist, so that, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyway, uh, yeah, so he's flying to Vegas, He get, or he's flying to Hawaii, he gets his ticket, and over in Hawaii, of course, now Tommy's really putting the moves on Betsy that he's basically tells her that he loves her, and you're wasting your time with that loser Jack who doesn't even want to get married. He's like, I could I could give you all this forever. I'd treat you like the best woman ever like you'd you'd never have to worry about anything ever again i would i would throw myself in front of a train for you and he kisses her and like she doesn't turn him away because she's getting kind of torn yeah. now she's starting to buy into this and so it's uh this is it's it's nutcracking time for jack He better get here pretty quickly because she's starting to buy into this stuff
1: yeah it, it, i mean she is kind of hypnotized by all of this she does start in this film as like kind of a uh i know it's too crude to call her crazy but yeah she is ready to get married. She really wants to get married, and she comes so close to it. And when that's taken away, it's crazy to think that, like, oh, it's it's a completely different person that you just met. But he is doing this like full seduction of what? The, uh, what do we think that uh, Jack and Bessie have been together for? Like four or five years or so. At least, yeah. And uh, yeah, and uh, and all of this, the whole course of their relationship is playing out with uh, Tommy in like a couple of days. And he's really good at it, and she's starting to get convinced, like, okay, maybe this is what I want. I I can't remember. Is this the moment when she – oh, no, it's too early before she says, like, I want children. I'll want children very soon. Like, she is really going for it. But, yeah, it's uh, it's understandable. But as nice as Tommy is being during all of this – He is uh, another side of him behind the scenes is he is becoming aware that Jack is on his way and he has people in various airports. He has people like around the island who he can use
0: uh, to, you know, keep him away to to play in his favor. And here we go with one of them and unabashedly i will say the karate kid is my all-time favorite movie so i'm very excited to see mr miyagi show up here so if you've ever wanted a trivia question where pat marita and nicholas cage share movie scenes where cameron poe from conair meets mr miyagi <laughs> there it is and uh
1: and yeah uh, uh pat marita's first, like, kind of truly comedic uh, role since, uh, what, when he was on Happy Days, I guess? Like, he's really funny in this. It's just a, a, a few brief scenes, but I love him in this film because I do think that after Karate Kid for a while, he really got typecast, and he, if he wasn't actually playing Mr. Miyagi again in one of the many uh, Karate Kid sequels, he was playing someone like Mr. Miyagi, and it's nice that This guy is just a sort of bum taxi driver in Hawaii who, uh, you know, maybe is uh, on the take with uh, the local, uh, uh, well, I don't know if we want to call him a gangster, whatever Tommy is exactly. And uh, yeah, I I think he's a a blast in this scene. And so Nicolas Cage, or Jack sees him, and. Uh, He says, hey, hey, you you want to ride? You want to ride? It's like, well, uh, yeah, I'm looking for uh, this guy, uh, you know, uh, Tommy Corman. It's like, oh, Tommy Corman. Oh, everyone knows there. Yeah. Like, really? You can take me there? Oh, absolutely. And of course, he is being paid to get him as far away from Tommy as possible. And uh, (laughs) where where does he take him first? Okay,
0: first, I want to talk about his name. If people don't remember this movie that Pat Morita plays a guy named Mahi, Mahi Mahi, named after the fish. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But it's the other thing is that funny that you said that Pat Morita got typecast as Mr. Miyagi. It's funny because in real life, Pat Morita was Hawaiian, a stand-up comedian, and I hate to make jokes about this, but had a, an alcohol problem, so he was probably very happy-go-lucky. Mm. So I'm guessing Mahi Mahi is the closest to, to he ever played to playing himself in a movie. I'm guessing this is what he was like.
1: Yeah, it's altogether possible. It's he certainly plays it really well and casually. Like it's it's the most human I think I've ever seen him in a film. The most natural, I would say.
0: Yeah. So Mahi, uh, the cab driver who's been paid to drive Nicolas Cage around and keep him away from the, ga- the gambler's house, <laughs> t- picks him up, and so many great quotes. I just have so many parts of this movie circled here in my notes where Mahi picks up uh, Jack Singer. And Jack's like, yeah, we got to go to Tommy Corman's house. And Mahi's like, yeah, oh, I know him. Let's go there. And so he takes him to this other guy's house named Chief Orman. <laughs> and on the way, uh, Mahi is explaining how women love Hawaii. He's like, you know, women, they come down here and they just melt. They, they see the beauty of this place and they want to make freaky freaky all night freaky, long. Freaky. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Jack's like, that's just great to hear. Thank you. That's just great news. <laughs> Yeah, Freaky
1: Freaky is another song from the musical I remember. So, uh, 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 yeah, I I re-listened to the soundtrack, uh, a cast recording a couple weeks ago uh, to prepare for this. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this song. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah,
0: but that deadpan line, yeah, that's just really great news. (laughs) And then Mahi takes him to this guy's house, Chief Orman, played by Peter Boyle. Oh, Tommy Corman. I thought you said Chief Orman. Yeah. (laughs) And here's another line, another Nicolas Cage reading that this line shouldn't even be that funny, but it just is because the way he inflects it is that where Jack pulls Mahi aside. and He says, listen, Mahi, I don't have time for this horse shit. (laughs) 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 I'm totally going to put that as the stinger at the end of the episode, because that's the quote that I love, the way he inflects horse shit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, like no one else could say it.
1: Like like no one had ever said the word before.
0: Yeah, and then he follows that up. This is like the home run hitter who just hit a 500-foot home run, and now he hits another one in the next at bat. The very next line, like uh, 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 Mahi's like, oh, we can't, we can't uh, insult this guy Orman. He's got a lot of influence on the island. And this is maybe one of my favorite lines in the movie where Jack says, influence, he lives in a shack. <laughs> but... He says if you if
1: you walk away from this, it will be all over the island by uh, you know mid afternoon, and no one will help you then. So you have to pay your respect to Chief Orman, and we we really have to talk about Chief Orman. I mean, he could have his own movie. Uh, first off, he's based on you know this Marlon Brando. Yeah. It, so Andrew Bergman, uh, his film preceding this was The Freshman with Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando, and he actually flew to Marlon Brando's private island to pitch him on The Freshman. And he spent a few days with him there, you know, like he's on vacation on a tropical island with the freaking Godfather. And just said it was the most surreal experience of his life. And so he just had to depict (laughs) that guy, that bizarre, who is this weird white guy living in this tropical paradise and for some reason obsessed with musical theater. Um, And part of me wonders, it's like, I wonder, did he did he offer it to Brando? Is that even possible? It, it, it might not have been as funny if he had, uh, but, you know, I, for as difficult as Brando was, his re- reputation said he was, it, that state of his life and beyond, uh, it sounded to me like Andrew Bergman had a real good hold on him and could direct him very well in The Freshman. I mean, I love The Freshman. I don't know if that's a future staff pick for you as well, but uh, I, I think he's uh, he's great in that. But I, I love Peter Boyle in this scene and that, that moment where he says do you think grand hotel will come to hawaii uh the 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 musical just recently very popular on broadway it's like and yeah the lame is a it's just so funny and bizarre and then it's not long before he's singing bali high and and happy talk from south pacific
0: (laughs) yeah so so they get delayed it's a very long scene and it's yeah it's a very funny scene it's it's it almost doesn't fit in this movie it's too surreal but i know
1: yeah and then it never comes back in any sort of way. It, it, yeah, you could take it out of the movie completely and, like, you wouldn't know it was gone. But uh, I, I, thank God it's there because it has so many good laughs.
0: And I do like watching Nicolas Cage reacting to, again, this horse shit. <laughs> he has to sit there and listen to it and the look on his face always kills me. So so anyway, so uh, the, he tries to get away and he eventually steals Mahi's cab. And Nicolas Cage is now driving around Kauai endlessly <laughs> trying to find – uh, Tommy Corman's house and here we go this is the scene that I think is probably my favorite quote I know this is my my wife's favorite quote in this movie that when we visited Hawaii we must have quoted this 500 times in the week we were there Jack is on the phone asking for directions from the, the 411 operator and he's trying to figure out where Kapa'a is yes. <laughs> like, and my wife has always said this is the hardest thing about Hawaii because of all the, the what are they the uh, what are those called <laughs> apostrophes all the apostrophes oh, yeah. in the words you never know how to pronounce these long hawaiian names so nicholas cage is struggling and screaming in his nicholas cage way with the operator kapaa or is it uh-huh. kapaa are there are there two a's <laughs> or are there three a's is it kapaa
1: <laughs> it's funny because it's true and uh, you know having been to hawaii myself it, there, there's a lot of uh you know a lot of uh, uh, classic uh cultural names and uh
0: yeah you you always feel a little silly saying some of these words yeah there's a lot of kapaa's there we'll just say that. yeah <laughs> so so he's still frantically driving around hawaii looking for tommy corman and this is where tommy's really putting the moves on betsy he gives her the ring at this point mm-hmm. and he keeps saying you know you know jack is these you're throwing your life away this guy's a loser he's a nobody he's gonna let you down and and this is where it all kind of comes to a head where Jack finally finds Tommy's house and he goes there and uh, he's like, did you know where uh, Betsy and Tommy are? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they're just down the street at the Kauai Club. <laughs> and it's so great to see him in love. And Jack, this is another one my brother used to say all the time. He's like, oh, your dad's in love. Whoa, well, that's just so wonderful to hear. <laughs> <laughs> like, are, are you a friend of uh, dad's or Betsy's? Both, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is where Tommy does the heel turn. This is where he turns evil, where he knows he has to get Betsy to marry him quickly. And like you said, now he starts lying. This is where he brings up, yeah. it, "Well, Jack didn't owe me sixty-five thousand. He owed me three thousand, and he put you up himself." And it works. And Betsy's like, "Well, you screw him. Okay, I'll marry you." Yeah, uh, which I I, uh, I agree. It is a, uh, I guess a necessary turn for the, the the
1: plot to go into motion. I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but this is also one of those. Famous movies that just couldn't exist today in the world of cell phones. Like, you know, the the, the movie's, you know, over in five minutes if, if he can reach her in any way. But, like, I guess, you know, the stakes are on. Like, he, he can't keep him away forever. He has been trying his best. He's about to tackle him and uh, physically. Uh, but uh, he knows that he has got to seal the deal and marry her before they have just a regular conversation because he knows that everything will come crashing down. Yeah.
0: Uh, totally. That's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, this movie could could not exist. And so what happens in this movie is that Jack sees Betsy on the beach thinking about life decisions and he rushes out to talk to her and he gets tackled by Tommy and this big scuffle and Jack ends up in jail and Tommy knows, you know, the game is just about up now. I got to marry this girl quickly. And he goes to Betsy and he's like, you know, I'll give you. What is it? Let's go to Vegas, get married right now. And she eventually finally says yes. She's like, you know, Jack was a creep, and let's do it. And so Jack is now a Hawaiian in a Hawaiian jail. Uh, Betsy and Tommy are flying back to Vegas to get married, and we're going to have a big, big uh, finale in Las Vegas here.
1: Yeah, and you get Jailhouse Rock played, which is inevitable. You're just waiting for someone to have to go to jail so we can hear Jailhouse
0: Rock. Yeah. Okay, I'll let you lead up to the finale here, but I got to talk about one scene here where where uh, Jack gets bailed out of jail and he goes to see Mahi, Pat Morita, out in front. And Pat Morita has dropped the charges. He's not going to, you know, press charges for stealing his cab. But Mahi has some words of wisdom for Jack. And this this isn't that funny a scene on paper, but it's one that my brother... But the
1: response is priceless. Yeah,
0: my brother and I still to this day, 30 years later, quote this endlessly, where we'll get, one of us will give someone advice that means nothing and the other one will quote Honeymoon in Vegas, where Mahi says, let me give you some advice, Jack. He gives, says some, some phrase in Hawaiian, and Mahi's like, it means always have the good words come out of your mouth. And Jack thinks about it for a second, and he's like, <laughs> that just doesn't help me at all, but I appreciate yeah, the thought. <laughs> that just doesn't help me at all, but I appreciate the thought. So my brother and I say that. In fact, I remember just he, my brother was just a, went through an investiture. He's a federal judge now, and during his ceremony, I even said something. And I knew he was going to say, you know, that, doesn't, that doesn't help me at all, but I appreciate the thought. So that's just a Lanza running joke right there.
1: That's in my top five favorite lines to this movie too. It's uh, uh, I, I just love that like you know he's been through so much and he sees the finish line and but he's he's softening up a bit that he is nice enough to just say thank you. <laughs> that, that's all he needed to do to uh,
0: mahi mahi. He didn't need to scream that line to sell it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so we'll set up the end here where Tommy and Betsy are flying back to Vegas. She's agreed to marry him. She's bought into all the lies about Jack, and Jack is screwed now. He's trying to fly from Hawaii to Vegas. He can't get there. He has to go to San Jose, and in San Jose, Tommy pulls some strings and gets all the flights to Vegas shut down. So Jack is screwed. Jack is trying to go to Vegas to save his girlfriend, and what happens here?
1: Well, he is another pre-9-11 thing. Uh, He is just actually on the runway with a cardboard sign saying Las Vegas, running up and down to the private planes, I assuming. Uh, Just anyone, anyone get me to Vegas. And he finds a plane. He finds a plane that just happens to be going to Vegas. And it is full of, uh, what, what, about 30 different guys, all dressed as Elvis, led by the great Burton Gilliam. And, uh, from, you know, and if people don't know Burton Gilliam, who he popped up in a lot of great films over the years, uh, Paper Moon and such. But I mean, he is just always going to be known as Lyle from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Yes, He just has such a glorious grin and he's so toothy and smarmy, so funny, just such a great voice. And he is still working to this day, although. In glancing down his IMDb, there's, like, nothing I have even heard of since, like, 1995's Wild Bill. He had a little part in that. And uh, since then, it's been a lot of, like, you know, television, direct-to-video stuff. I, I don't know if I've seen him at all. And it's really a shame because he is so funny in this movie, leading the flying Elvises, which, you know, Jack doesn't realize as he's boarding the plane. He just knows this plane is going to Vegas. I got to get on this plane.
0: Yeah, it's- Okay, I want to talk about Burton Gilliam for a second because I I did a Stax picks episode on Blazing Saddles and I mm-hmm. love that movie and he I think is the funniest guy in that movie. So, for people who haven't seen Blazing Saddles recently, maybe you can explain who he is in that movie with the asterisk Please do not get this podcast banned on iTunes.
1: Yeah, yeah, don't worry. I'm way ahead of you on that one. Um, he is, uh, yeah, the uh, the sort of foreman of the building of the railroad, and he is overseeing the uh, let's say uh, fairly recently freed slaves, and uses some pretty uh, horrible uh, uh, words to describe them. But he's all he also does it with such a grin and such a demeanor that you you can't hate him too much. I mean, he, he's he's Pretty bad, but uh, he's also part of the famous uh, bean scene around the campfire and everything. And he's just full of great one-liners, or even the lines that aren't funny in and of itself. They're funny because he says them, like "Ooh, how about we get Mongo after him?" Like stuff like you know, it just his demeanor is so perfect. Um, and uh, I, you know, I've been a fan of his ever since I saw that movie at you know age six or whatever it was. And uh, oh, he, he's hysterical. And yeah, this is a perfect little role for him too, where he's just all smiling all grinning and uh yeah we're going to vegas and uh uh and and uh Jack doesn't find out until he is on the plane exactly how he is getting there.
0: Yeah, it's a, he's on a plane of skydiving Elvises, and they will be parachuting into Las Vegas. So that is how Jack will be making his appearance to stop the wedding, and he's terrified. He doesn't know how to skydive, and and all the, the parachuters are messing with him. They're telling yeah, him to yeah. pull different strings, and there's a great line here. Again, Burton Gilliam, such charisma. Like, I always wish he would have been a bigger star because he, is, he steals every scene he has ever been in, and he's got that voice. And the one line here in particular where Jack is asking him, he's like, well, I pull this and the chute opens. And Burton's like, yep. And Jack's like, is it foolproof? And Burton, I, I had to write this down because I had to get this word for word where Burton says, well, as the king himself said, ain't nothing in this whole wide world foolproof except in coup de vils and hookers. <laughs> now, I love the word "septon." C E P T apostrophe U N septon. That is such a wonderful word that Burton Gilliam slipped in there. Septon, cooptonvilles, and hookers.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I think that he could make quite a few uh, uh, conjunctions and contractions with words that we've never heard of. But in his voice, it's like he's inventing a new language. Yes.
0: So back in Vegas, you know, Tommy's there and he's trying to convince Betsy to marry him. And now she's getting cold feet. She realizes I'm really rushing into this, which you think she might have realized that before. But I guess for plot convenience, she has to suddenly realize it now. But Tommy starts getting really evil now, where he starts threatening yeah. her and grabbing her, and he says, I'll pay you a million dollars to marry me. A million dollars, and this is a year before Indecent Proposal.
1: Yeah, this this movie gets no credit for being the first movie that someone makes
0: an Indecent Proposal, but uh, yeah but yeah so he's like grabbing her and she's trying to get away and he's like do not disrespect me in the lobby of the bally's hotel that would be very bad for you so tommy's turn in straight evil here to get you to root against him which I, I would you and i both brought up does not fit in his character with his character earlier in the movie i would say they had to give him a heel turn to make to make you not want him to succeed
1: it doesn't fit but this is what i was alluding to earlier is that so i i want to ask you this like Is this actually who he is? And has this whole movie, we have just been seeing this softer side of him. I guess my question is like, is this guy actually dangerous? Like he's referred to as a gambler, like he's an old school Vegas gambler. But we all know that if you were a a gambler in that era of Vegas, you at least knew people. And yeah, do we think that Tommy is a gangster himself? Do we think he has killed people? I, I don't know the answer to that. I go back and forth.
0: My personal opinion is that he's not dangerous at all. He's just a lonely old gambler. And I've known, maybe not personally, but I've known of people like this. And they're not mobsters. They just gamble, and they win a lot, and yeah. they, their whole life is gambling, and they're kind of lonely. So I don't think yeah. he's dangerous at all. I think they really screwed his character here just because they wanted to make him evil. I don't think this fits with his character yeah
1: i it is unfortunate because you don't want to end this movie seeing him as a villain he's an antagonist perhaps but he does kind of get a little too dark toward the end and uh, uh, I, I don't know i I will say this about the uh, musical adaptation. Uh, he's a little cuddlier towards the end, and you, I think, end that show with some nice feelings. Maybe it's just because the great Tony Danza was playing him. I don't know, but uh, it, it's it's a sweet little uh, uh turn that he gets at the end, a little little signature uh, farewell. Yeah,
0: and I will say in the movie that you think he makes this evil heel turn here, but at the end of the movie, when Jack is going to parachute in and save Betsy. Tommy immediately gives up. He's like, well, they're in love. I can't win. So he's like, he's not that menacing, really. He gives up once he realizes I'm out of my league. I can't win. So he does kind of have a little salvation.
1: And I actually think that's kind of a sweet moment. He does come a little around where he says to Johnny Sandwich, he's like, it's over. It's over. He jumped out of a plane. Like, he he admits defeat. And I want to say, I don't know if Khan plays it this way exactly, but I want to say he almost respects Jack a little more in that moment. But like, wow, he really went for it. And, you know, he he admits defeat. He he lost fair and square. I mean, and, you know, and fair and square despite all of his efforts to play things
0: unfairly. Game respects game, I believe is how they phrase that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the last part of the movie is Nicolas Cage skydiving out of his plane with the flying Elvis. It's a very iconic scene. And I do remember when they advertised this movie in all the promos and trailers, it was always that scene. Where are the flying Elvises, Utah? This is the one scene.
1: Exactly, which is a, sort of a shame is that, like, you know, you're great – comedic set piece ending how are you going to omit that from the marketing like you have to tell people this is the movie where Nicolas cage jumps out of an airplane dressed as elvis yeah. uh which is yeah it's too bad but uh hey that, that that's what it was back then <laughs> uh and i know it's what it's the main reason i wanted to see the movie and i was very devastated to learn once i saw the movie that it was kind of clear like oh he's not actually skydiving he's against a a, a blue screen or whatever and uh yeah the, the camera's on him he's too well lit he's not actually jumping out of the plane because even then you know nicholas cage still knew on my radar you know he had this reputation and, and certainly his character in the film you want to see this crazy guy jump out of a plane oh, yeah. and so he doesn't do it for real but whatever i guess that's fine
0: i'm shocked he didn't do it for real like if this was a later nicholas cage movie he would have de- demanded that he got to do it for real Exactly.
1: I I think, uh, yeah, 10 years later, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, that's the end of the movie, although there's a couple other iconic scenes happening at the end of the movie here. And one that I have to point out, and I will point it out specifically because my wife always points it out. Boy, they sure make Sarah Jessica Parker bounce around a lot in that white dress up and down (laughs) stairs.
1: Uh, yeah, well, you know, the whole film, she is uh, costumed, um, uh, you know, quite creatively uh, in ways that really showcase her form. Uh, she wears a few nice bikinis and, and bathing suits in this film. And yes, we get her in full Vegas showgirl outfit, uh, which is
0: essential for the final shot. Well, of even the film before here. that, even before the showgirl, she's in that tight, we put her in a tight white dress with no bra. And the next five minutes are her running up and down stairs as many times as possible. So she bounces. I'm like, that's gotta be intentional.
1: Uh, Yeah, they knew what they were doing there, uh, I'm afraid to say. And I even remember Nicolas Cage hosted Saturday Night Live uh, to promote this movie, and his whole monologue, I don't know if you remember, maybe I'm crazy for remembering, but his whole monologue was him talking about – how amazing it was to work with Sarah Jessica Parker because she just has the most amazing breasts you've ever seen. <laughs> and it makes like the, the rest of the cast feel uncomfortable. And I don't know someone, you know, Mike Myers, Dana Carvey goes up to and say, like, Hey, uh, you know, uh, Nick, you're, this, this is kind of weird. Isn't it? It's like, what am I, what, what are you talking about? It's, you know, it's true, isn't it? I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I, that is pretty ingrained in my memory.
0: I completely forgot about that, but you're right. that fits into the mythology of Nicolas Cage very nicely that he's crazy. <laughs> uh he is at that oh okay speaking of a trivia note i want to give one little trivia note here that i love about this movie is that this whole movie is about elvis and elvis stuff and worship of elvis and elvis music and in real life i don't know if people realize that Nicolas cage married elvis's kid (laughs) he married lisa marie a couple years after this
1: movie just a few years yeah it was it was very close and i i have to wonder it's like did Did they strike up a relationship because of this film? Did they meet at a screening and were like, oh, and here we have tonight Elvis's daughter. I don't know. It's uh, very strange. And I mean, as that whole marriage was, if I remember correctly, it didn't last terribly long. Maybe a year. I don't know. Yeah,
0: surprisingly. Uh, (laughs) Well, because he never jumped out of a plane for her. That's the problem. I guess so. Uh,
1: and also, while we're doing little trivia notes in this section of the film, uh, we were just talking about Saturday Night Live. Uh, did you recognize the voice of Don Pardo as the uh, announcer introducing all the flying Elvises as they float to Earth? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah I recognize him as our, our brave Elvises, Jack yeah. Singer. <laughs> yeah, that's Don Pardo. Yeah, just – Well, it does always bother me that he does know Jack Singer's name.
1: He's he's announcing them by name, which I don't think you would do for the show anyways. I I think there's a lot of holes in the whole Flying Elvis' subplot where I don't think that the skydiving team would take off from San Jose and fly all the way there. Usually you just take off from Las Vegas and then jump. Right there, whatever. Uh, And then also that he is introducing them by name, but also someone has given him the name of Jack, who was not scheduled to be part of this. It's amazing that they even had a jumpsuit on the plane that fit him. They had a spare, just in case. But whatever. Why why am I picking nits at the greatest moment of this whole film you
0: know what's funny is i wrote down those exact same questions a how did they know jack was on that plane like does roy bacon have some state-of-the-art pa system he can announce to vegas who's on there and then b if they're the flying elvises of utah why are they leaving from san jose (laughs) it does that doesn't make sense either
1: best not to ask too many questions there i say yeah
0: so anyway jack parachutes in and they announce his name and betsy hears him and she runs over and she's like Jack, it's you. And he's like, Betsy, I love you. And she's like, I know. I I can't believe I fell for all his lies. And you jumped out of a plane for me. So they all get back together, and it's all happy. And again, Tommy just gives up. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of says that, He jumped out of a plane. And I, I love – we, we uh, sort of glossed
1: over it earlier, but like uh, he says, I was at – I've been flying all over. I, I was at Hawaii. I was shouting your name. I saw you on the beach. And she says – he said that was just the wind or the uh, – is it the wind or the waves? I can't yeah, remember. Wind. Yeah. And so, yeah, James Conn, uh, Tommy says like, oh, yes, yeah, the shape of the rocks. It sounds like uh, yelling sometimes. But yeah, no, it, it's a very sweet moment that she realizes, oh, no, he was on this quest to to find me and that he did. Because otherwise, it, I don't know if she would be so quick to forgive him, but it's it's just a, a wonderful moment. And, uh, and then they embrace and you, you, you get
0: that warm feeling. And then we end, of course, with the wonderful shot of them getting married with him still in his Elvis attire. And her still in his, or in her showgirl attire. Well, all the skydiving Elvises are behind them in the little wedding chapel. And again, for people who have never been to Las Vegas, there are indeed little gaudy chapels like that all over the place. Anybody can get married. My wife and I almost got married in one of those. <laughs> but that is, that is the reality. And that a lot of them are Elvis based. So this is not a uh, fictional uh, made up thing. This is how it, Vegas actually works. Yeah.
1: I have a friend who was married in Vegas uh, by an Elvis in a chapel just like that. And let's face it, I mean, I love this movie, but the whole movie exists for the sole purpose of this final shot, of him in the Elvis garb, her in the showgirl, all of the Elvises behind them. And this is a true, like, you know, uh, at a dinner party or something, like, oh, tell us how you got married and (laughs) – they have a hell of a story and they probably have a picture to prove it just just that snap of them at the altar uh, of the chapel and it's just such a great image it's a such a perfect little button to the end of this comedy i love it so much but now i have a question for you yes now that we have reached the end although
0: before your question i have to ask one question oh, yeah. do you think Nicolas cage wore the elvis suit in his wedding picture to lisa marie or is that too weird Maybe just in the bedroom. I don't know. He's such a weirdo. He's like, yeah. like we on our honeymoon. Please take off my dad's clothes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, I, I, I imagine it, it got pretty weird uh, during that their courtship. But it is Nicolas Cage, so you never know. He's a wild card. You never know. All right, so what's your question? Well, this is the thing that always – it doesn't bother me, but I always wonder. And
1: I love this movie. I love the arc and the adventure that they go through to find each other, to be together. But given all that's happened – and all their interactions, you tell me, are they, it's, you know, this movie almost, what, 28 years ago, tw- uh, 27 years ago, are they still married today? Are Jack and Betsy still married? Are they married a year from then? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, because, uh, you know, they go through quite a lot in this, and they go through some pretty epic fights, you know, they are maybe not, compatible for each other maybe she is better suited for someone like tommy maybe not tommy exactly you know he has some some you know demons it seems but yeah i don't know if the two of them really uh can sustain a you know 50 year marriage based on this adventure but i'd like to think they can
0: you're asking some pretty existential questions here like you know what's the meaning of life is there a god do jack singer and betsy nolan stay married a year later I've never thought about that. My initial instinct is no way because he's got yeah. way too many issues and he's insane. And I think she's going to get <laughs> sick of him real quick. But I'd I like not to think of that because this is the, the one of the greatest romances of our time. So I try not to think of that.
1: Uh, agreed 100%.
0: Yeah. The mommy issues. Like he could write a book on how many mommy issues he's going to have.
1: Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, it's so true.
0: Also, also, he did lose her in a poker game, which cannot be overlooked.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, he, 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 he can only do that once. You know, he, he, if he loses her again, then I think it's over.
0: I lost my wife in a pie gal game once, and she didn't forgive me for <laughs> like five months.
1: But she did eventually. That's the important
0: Eventually. Thing. I'm charming.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're no Nicolas Cage, but who
0: is? <laughs> no. I don't have the influence of Chief Orman either, even though I, don't, I do live in a shack. <laughs> influence? He lives in a shack! So anything else you want to bring up or add before we sign off here? I know we're so enthusiastic over this movie. We just have the stuff we want to keep bringing up. Because, again, this is one I didn't even really need to rewatch. I could almost have done this podcast just off the top of my head. I've seen this movie so many times.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just – I watched it like a month ago when you first reached out to me, and then I – You know, it was a pleasure to revisit it just for a few details. But, yeah, I know this movie pretty well. And, yeah, I love this film. I'm glad there are other people who do. I feel like back in the days of, you know, VHS or such, this was a big rental. Maybe it wasn't huge theatrically, and it was probably on cable a lot. Uh, And I would love for people to discover it now. I I am a big Andrew Bergman fan, period. I I think that he's made a few great films. uh, And, I mean, he wrote Blazing Saddles. He's royalty for that reason alone. He also wrote another one of my favorite films, The (laughs) In-Laws. Uh, which I highly recommend people check out if they haven't seen it. Uh, Peter Falk and Alamark and just a classic comedy Uh, and similar in tone in many ways. There's a lot of like globe trotting and stuff like that and that. Uh, And then, yeah, uh, the freshman came right before this. And then after this, he did another film with Nicolas Cage. It could happen to you, Ah. which is, is not as like crazy and manic and nutsy as this, but um, it's a, it's a sweet film. I think it holds up pretty well. Uh, I actually met Andrew Bergman at a screening of The In-Laws a few months back, and I asked him about Nicolas Cage afterwards. And I said, like, you know, you've you you know, Nicolas Cage is known for being pretty out there, and and uh, you never know what you're going to get with him. But not only did he get one of Nicolas Cage's best crazy performances out of him uh for this film but he also uh it could happen to you is nicholas cage at kind of his most mellowed and sweet and sincere and i asked him like was that difficult did you is he easy to work with on set he said he never had a single problem with him nicholas cage knew exactly what mo- what these movies were and how much he should give to them and like you know he said uh for it could happen to you he said like he knew he wasn't the 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 funny one he was the straight man like he let Rosie Perez do all the crazy stuff mm-hmm. and sure he could easily go toe to toe with her on that but didn't need to and uh, yeah he's 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 just a champ that way
0: I'm glad you brought that one up because that is a movie that's festered in the back of my head for years like it could happen to you I remember thinking at the time I'm like I really like this movie and this isn't the type of movie I generally like it's like just mm-hmm. a straight up sweet romance like fairy tale and I yeah. remember really liking it at the time and I'm like I've never met anybody who, A, remembers that movie or B, even liked it. So I'm so shocked you brought that. I mean, I shouldn't be shocked because that's why we're here. We both like this. But that's one that's been in my head for years.
1: I will say it's worth revisiting because I don't think I'd seen it since the days of VHS until maybe a year or two ago, Mm -hmm. and I I caught it on cable and I was like, oh, I remember thinking this is a sweet movie, and I will say it is also a lot funnier than I remember. Like it's not it's not over the top or or really broad comedy, but there's a lot of like really good little gems in this in that, and like I think with this film too, you know, you have Peter Boyle, Pat Morita, people like that. Uh, Andrew Bergman was really good at casting. Really good actors, even if it was just a bit part, even if it's just one scene. And, you know, he always gives their his actors a chance to really showcase their talents, no matter what they're doing. And uh, I think that's true for most of his films, even you know, some of his later films. He he tragically directed Showgirls, <laughs> which is a, a great—I'm oh, no, sorry, not Showgirls, Striptease. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh striptease which is a really funny great book that like oh uh, boy did they botch that it just doesn't work and that kind of ended his directing career uh which is really too bad because that guy is still you know sharp as a tack, really funny
0: wow how could you get showgirls and striptease confused i'm shocked i,
1: I don't know i i there, there must be some common thread between the two i i just uh can't imagine how i find those so interchangeable
0: yeah well now you've got me thinking about it could happen to you and how i should look that one because I want to have you back on the show again just because I think we have a fun energy together. And, again, this was literally just two ships passing in the night. And I love when some of the podcasts work out that way because I've never talked to Johnny before right now. And it's funny. Like, I feel like we've known each other forever. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Well. Just
1: looking back at the canon of your uh, episodes, uh, I do know this. We at least have very similar tastes in uh, films, so uh, it, it's it's nice to hear. And, and, yeah, I was completely unaware of your podcast uh, until you reached out to me, and it's been a joy catching up on some of those episodes and uh, and just uh, hearing your thoughts and gaining your sensibilities.
0: That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's – Johnny, like I, when I met Johnny, we've been talking about this podcast for a while. He's been going through all my old Staff Picks episodes, and I can tell because my downloads go from eight people to nine. So it's very exciting. (laughs) No, but it's very cool listening to his thoughts and him picking out which ones he liked and things that he thought were good or bad about certain episodes. So it's it's been really cool picking up a new listener like this. So I just want to say thank you for stopping by and again for delving into a movie that I just feel so strongly about because there just aren't movies like this anymore. And like a movie, they don't all have to be important and serious and like a big deal. Just lighthearted, fun comedies. I really miss those from the 90s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the the 1990s really were the golden age uh, of the, I mean, outside of like the classic era, but the the golden age of the modern romantic comedy. Back when you could have a uh, romantic comedy actually be comedic and funny. And uh, yeah, they, they, they don't get much better than this, if you ask me.
0: All right, and I think with that, I'm going to sign off here. I just uh, again thank you for stopping by, Johnny. Sure and thing.
1: And could I add that uh, if people would like to hear more films that I uh, talk about and review, I do log all of my films on Twitter. Right now, I'm not currently writing for anyone, but you can follow me on Twitter uh, at PomatoVich at or, yeah, at Twitter, P-O-M-A-T-T-O-V-I-C-H. Uh, on uh, Friday, I'm going to be seeing like 17 films at the New York Film Festival, so I'll have a lot to say about all of those.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, Johnny, I follow him on Facebook and Twitter. He's always posting. He does little mini-reviews, just like a one-paragraph synopsis of what he thought of a movie. And I've actually picked up a couple ideas for Staff Picks episodes just from his little thoughts. So definitely follow him. Yeah, definitely follow him, and I'd love to have you back. And, again, thank you for stopping by.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Thanks so much.
0: All right, again, um, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at Twitter, at Mario J Lanza on email mail staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. And until the next time I talk to you I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Until next time, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.
1: I still don't understand this. You went in there with $500, right? We had this whole discussion. I had a straight
0: flash! Do you know what a straight flush is? It's like. unbeatable.
1: Like, unbeatable is not unbeatable! Hey, I know that now, okay?
0: Listen, Mahi, I don't have time for this horseshit!